preaching test is John 2, 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at the tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover, the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, stir us up and focus us on you. Amen. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our story today, that story of Jesus cleansing the temple, it's a familiar one. You probably already know most of the details already, especially if you've seen really any of the movies about Jesus that come out every few years. This scene is always a dramatic one. You know how it goes. Jesus, after he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey and the crowds are welcoming him with shouts of Hosanna, goes into the temple and he's enraged at the corruption that he sees there. I mean, he sees the money changers converting the, the people's Romans coins into Jewish money that could be used in the temple. And then he sees the merchants who are selling animals for sacrifice for those who had traveled from far off, as well as other merchants probably selling souvenirs. And, and all of these, the money changers and the merchants are using their privileged position in the temple to charge far more than they ought, driving the poor deeper into poverty as they try to be faithful to God. And so Jesus drives out these merchants and money changers and keeps anyone else from coming through, and as he, shout, and he shouts as he does so, right? It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And having cleansed the temple, he stays and he teaches and of course, this doesn't go over well with the religious leaders who seek to find a way to kill this troublemaker, Jesus. And finally, they're successful on Friday of that week. Uh, like I said, it's a familiar story, and you probably don't really need me to retell it. Except for one thing. There is just one uh, problem. The story that I just told is not the story from our reading today. If you don't believe me, you can open your pew Bibles and take a look. You won't find any mention of price gouging. You won't find the phrase house of prayer or den of robbers. Nor will you find Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday or the leader seeking to kill him. 
And that's because the version of the story I just told you comes from uh, the other three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. But we're not in those Gospels. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And John's telling of this story is a little bit different from how uh, we imagine it. Maybe you've heard this before, encountered this before, that our four Gospels uh, accounts of the ministry of Jesus don't all tell the story of Jesus in the same way, that there are differences between them, both in uh, in which stories of Jesus they choose to tell and often in the precise detail of, uh, of those same stories. And you can see why this could be challenging for Christians and skeptics alike. I mean, if this particular story of Jesus is important for us to believe, why would we have four different accounts of it? Wouldn't it be better just to have one consistent and fully detailed account rather than the four that we have now? Maybe. It would be certainly simpler, but I'm not sure it would be better. Because for whatever reasons, the early church councils that put together our scriptures and the Holy Spirit who guided them in their work decided that no single gospel was sufficient to communicate the life and work of Jesus, but instead that these four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, should all be handed on and studied together. You know, for me, the fact that those early Christians handed down these four gospels all bound together in spite of their differences actually makes the stories more trustworthy. For if those first believers were seeking to deceive us, certainly they would have ironed out the inconsistencies in their story before passing it on. But instead, they've given us four different accounts written from four different perspectives with at least four different audiences in mind, all proclaiming Jesus as the Savior of the world. And that gives us a richer encounter with Jesus, though it makes interpreting the stories sometimes a bit more complicated. So with all that in mind, these differences in our Gospels, let's return to our actual reading for today rather than the story as we imagine it. And notice how John's account differs from the more familiar accounts in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. The first and most striking difference for me is the timing of this story. While all four Gospels uh, tell of Jesus driving out merchants and money changers from the temple, John differs significantly in the timing of the event. The other three places right at the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, right on what we call uh, now Palm Sunday, uh, this week that he's going to be crucified. But John places this story right near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, it's possible that Jesus actually cleansed the temple twice, uh, and the differences in our accounts are because they're reporting different events. That's one possibility. Or it could be that John has moved this event to the beginning uh, for his own purposes of better communicating Jesus and who Jesus is for us. Either way, I believe the Holy Spirit has preserved this story for us in this way for a reason, to bring us closer to Christ. So timing, that's the first difference. Another difference here related to the timing is how Jesus is received in the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders building throughout Jesus' ministry so that when he finally arrives in the temple, this is the culmination of this conflict that we've been waiting to happen and the leaders immediately are seeking his death. In fact, they've already been seeking his death even before he does this. But in John, there hasn't been any conflict yet. I mean, all Jesus has done in John so far is call some disciples and uh, supply wine at a wedding. So Jesus' actions are something of a surprise to everyone involved. 
And as a result, you'll notice there's not much hostility toward Jesus in our reading today. I mean, certainly the religious leaders, uh, what John calls the Jews in this story, aren't particularly happy with Jesus, but there's no mention of them seeking to kill him. Finally, Jesus' motivation in this story is a little different or not as clear as it is in the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have Jesus accusing the merchants of being thieves or robbers. There's that, that line, you've turned it into a den of robbers or a den of thieves. But John makes no mention of that. Rather than speaking out against corruption, Jesus seems to be challenging the entire system of buying and selling sacrifices at the temple. The problem here isn't that they're making the temple into a house of robbers, but that they're making it into a marketplace, a house of trade. Now, maybe, maybe we hear this today and it makes perfect sense because it simply sounds like the worlds of commerce and religion shouldn't mix, that churches should be non-profit rather than for-profit. But what Jesus is saying here is far more radical, far more troubling at least to those whose tables are being overturned. Because as strange as it seems to us to imagine this sort of marketplace taking place in the temple, there was nothing out of the ordinary with the selling of animals for sacrifice. This buying and selling, it's no new innovation. In fact, it had been practiced for many centuries, and it was, in fact, commanded by Moses in Deuteronomy 14 as a way of caring for those who lived far from the temple. Rather than having to bring their own sheep or grain or oxen on this long, multi-day journey for their annual sacrifice, they could sell it in the town in which they lived and simply bring the money to the temple in which they could buy uh, whatever was needed in order to uh, rightly fulfill the sacrifices required by God. Far from being some greedy practice introduced later, although there may have been some abuse of it, this selling of animals in the temple was actually a faithful living out of God's law given through Moses. Which means that Jesus is not purifying the temple from an external corruption, but challenging an institution that has been a part of Israel's worship since at least the time of the first temple. The faithful Jews in the temple must have felt something like we would feel if some respected teacher just walked in here and demanded that we no longer gather for coffee hour or Lenten suppers or recite the Apostles' Creed or sing a mighty fortress. So that in mind, pay attention to the back and forth between Jesus and those in the temple. Jesus comes into the temple. He drives out the money changers, the animals, the merchants. He overturns a centuries-old tradition And understandably, the Jews in the temple question his authority to do this. And Jesus' answer is shocking. Destroy this temple, he says. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Not only is he challenging the merchants and the money changers, now he's challenging the temple itself. They're confounded by this, rightly so, and so they protest. We've been building this for 46 years, uh, referring to the most current restoration. Of course, the temple's far older than that. But Jesus, we read, was speaking of the temple of his body. And here we see how earth-shakingly radical this is. That God's presence is no longer centered in the temple institution, but in the body of Jesus. There has been a seismic shift 
in how God relates with creation. And Jesus is now confronting those in the temple with the reality of this shift. Can you imagine how distressing this message must have been? To hear that the institution you have faithfully dedicated your life to is even now being overturned and raised into something new. I mean, can you blame them for being a little incredulous? Well, there's something similar going on today in the church. Nationally, there is a seismic shift occurring in the way Americans relate to Christianity and the church, religion in general. And we in the Northwest, we're at the forefront of this shift. The time-honored traditions and institutions that have served us as Lutherans well for the past several generations, they are increasingly being challenged as our congregations grow older, as the church is pushed farther from the center of society. This mentality of if you build it, they will come has long since lost its luster, and the once automatic authority that the church could claim is facing challenge after challenge. And as I sat with this text this week, and I began to understand how much Jesus was overturning when he entered the temple on that day, I found myself wondering what God's role in our current trend might be. Is this seismic shift we are experiencing in the church and in the culture a sign of God's enemies at work? Is this the forces of sin, death, and hell arrayed against us? Or is God at work in this, overturning institutions that have become idols in order to shake us from the lethargy that comes from success? I can't give an answer to that. I don't know what God is up to precisely here, though I do trust God to be faithful. But as the cultural tables are being overturned, as the church's currency scatters across the floor, I am hearing that same lament from nearly 2,000 years ago. Lord, this has been under construction for 46 years, or 30 in the case of the ELCA, or 70 in the case of this congregation, or 500, or 2,000. Pick your number. But Jesus' response, to me anyways, is comforting. Destroy this temple you cling to, and I will raise it up in no time at all. At the end of the day, whatever the future may hold for the people of God in this country, for the body of Christ and our institutions, we can trust in God, who has drawn near to us in Christ and as the culture changes around us and the church learns to adapt, we know that God's promises don't rely on our institutions or our adaptability or our influence, but on Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to us. So people of God, Emmanuel Lutheran Church, the body of Christ gathered at the corner of 3rd and Euclid, be strong and courageous and ready for change. Cling tightly to Jesus and to his promise for you. Trust in his forgiveness given in word and water, in bread and wine. And as you cling tightly to that which is central, to Jesus Christ and his promise, hold loosely 
everything else which God has given you. For change, it is a coming. And we don't know exactly what form it will take. But our God is faithful. And though the path forward, whatever it may be, will not be easy, God will see us through. Amen.